Hey, everybody. Before we get into today's podcast, we just want to tell you about our event that's being held in New York City on February 15th and 16th. And we want to make sure that you have the opportunity to join us for this awesome, fun party. Kira, let's talk a little bit about what's going on at TCC in real life. So we're basically taking the podcast and a lot of people that we interviewed on the podcast, and then we're putting them all in a room, 75 people, and an amazing lineup of top copywriters like Kim Krause-Schwalm, Joanna Weeb, Rye Schwartz, Laura Belgray, Brian Kurtz, Kevin Rogers. I could go on and on and on. You can find their names and the list of speakers on the event page, which Rob will give you. But I've never been in a room with all of these copywriters, online marketers before. And beyond that, we're covering the three pillars of copywriting, what it really takes from going from a copywriter who takes orders from clients to going to really a really great consultant who knows how to run a business. So the topics are diverse, but they're covering basically the three pillars, the offer, the list, and the marketing strategy. Yeah, this is a copywriting conference, but it's not the typical stuff that you read about copywriting, you know, 10 new ideas for headlines that pull those kinds of things. The people who are speaking have incredible information to share. So Kim Krause-Schwalm, for instance, is going to be talking about the way that she's beat the controls that she's run for companies like Agora and Boardroom, real life lessons that are going to be immediately applicable to the kind of writing that we all do every day. And Jason Henderson, who's an expert at marketing acquisition and email, The topic of his speech is three email copywriting secrets I discovered helping porn stars get tan in 1994. Like You're not going to find that kind of stuff anywhere else at any marketing conference, but the takeaways are real. It's the stuff that we can use in our businesses every day. And really, for me, that's a huge part of why I'm excited to be there. And beyond the content, right? Like new content, our presenters are bringing in new presentations they've never shared before. Beyond that piece, there's the whole networking aspect. We've built this community. We've all helped build this community. And now we get to actually hang out in real life. And so we're really focused on the social aspect just as much as we're focused on the content. And that's why we're really excited about a two-hour cocktail party Party. on Friday night. (laughs) It's It's the final day. And the Agora companies are sponsoring this rooftop party, again, open bar for two hours. So it's a great way to really just meet new people in New York City with a fantastic view of Manhattan. So really, the emphasis here is on meeting your fellow copywriters and building some real friendships and hopefully creating some opportunities too for your business. And it's not just the rooftop party. The first night, we're putting together dinners where people can go to dinner together in sort of small groups and chat and get to know each other. We have a killer swag bag full of books and other things that our presenters have offered to share. The value of the swag bag alone is over $200 when you start to think about you know all the things that you're going to learn from the event, from the speakers, the things that you get free. You're definitely going to want to be at this event. And beyond that, you can meet the hiring managers from the Agora companies. So they're, they're there and they're excited to meet all of you. And there's a great opportunity if you're interested in direct response copy, you can meet with them and figure out you know what opportunities they have and how it overlaps with your business and your goals. So we could talk about this all day, but you're probably better off just going to the page to learn more where you can buy your ticket. Go to bit.ly, that's bit.ly forward slash TCC 
in NYC. TCC is capitalized. NYC is capitalized. But bit.ly forward slash TCC in NYC. You get all the details there. You can buy your ticket. You can even sign up for the extra event that we're having Saturday morning. It's just going to be a fun hangout in New York City with your fellow copywriters. It's all there. Find out more about it. And we look forward to seeing you in New York City, February 15th and 16th with the rest of the Copywriter Club. What if you could hang out with seriously talented copywriters and other experts, ask them about their successes and failures, their work processes, and their habits, then steal an idea or two to inspire your own work? That's what Kira and I do every week at the Copywriter Club podcast. You're invited to join the club for episode 71 as we chat with copywriter, marketing consultant, and hypnotist Jesse Jernigan about trading his magic act for high-paying copywriting gigs how he finds and lands freelance clients, what goes on behind the scenes of an online summit, and how hypnotism helps him become a better copywriter. Welcome, Jesse. Thank you guys so much for having me. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. Yeah, it's cool to talk with you guys on this and after having you both on my summit. So this is great. Yes, and we're going to talk about your summit in a bit. You're our first hypnotist on the show. Okay, yeah. Yeah, we're waiting for you to say something like, look into my eyes, you know, <laughs> follow the watch, whatever. Uh, yeah. I, I'm actually a little nervous now. I feel like you might hypnotize us and make us say something ridiculous. I don't know. No, Stand no, up. no. <laughs> All right. So Jesse, a good place to start is just with your story. You know, who are you? How did you get into copywriting, especially with the magic background? Tell us a little bit more about your story. Oh, this is funny. So we're going to go back to the days of copywriting books and Dan Kennedy's, I think, 1993 book, How to Write a Sales Letter. So I graduated college in 2007. So I came out right at the heart of the recession. And nobody was hiring for anything I had a degree in. And I'd been a magician and a hypnotist. And I'd worked, you know, shows. I'd probably made five or $6,000 a year just doing it on the side. And my buddy told me, you should just do this full time until a job opens up. And so I went out and I found an agent. And I was a really great performer. I don't like to toot my own horn because I, I wasn't necessarily more talented than anybody else. But I have a great personality, which is, you know, it's big as a freelancer. It's big as an entertainer. It, it makes up for a lot of shortcomings. So I got on with a couple agents and my whole process exploded and I was making an extra $15,000 or so a year. And since I had scholarships for college, I didn't have any debt. I didn't live very well. I mean, I was getting by on $22,000, $25,000 a year, but because I had little debt and I spent most of my time traveling to shows, I lived pretty well. I realized I wanted to grow my business and that there was this big opportunity to become a successful entertainer because the market was just not served by quality entertainers. So I decided to market myself. I have a really great mentor. His name was Jeff Ronning, and he was this amazing stage hypnotist marketer, which is funny because he actually left the business too, and he runs an online group, I think, called Stealth Seminar. But at the time, Jeff was really big on direct response copywriting. And he like mentored me to study Dan Kennedy. And he told me, look, right now, everybody's moving everything online. And this is the biggest time for you to go into direct mail. So I actually got my start copywriting, writing for myself, doing direct mail. 
And so I did postcards. I did, I think they're called puffy mailers where you would send like things in envelopes so people would open them. I would send just these massive, massive press kits with all kinds of stuff in it, white papers, reasons you should hire me. And it worked. And as my business grew, I started experimenting with different types of copywriting, different types of sales letters. I moved into corporate speaking. And so I transitioned all the clients I had from hypnosis into relaxation therapy, which I did through MPI. I became MPI's co-chair of communication. So I had access to this huge network of people. And I just had this great business. I was hitting between 85 and 105K. That's gross, not net. And I was, I was living a great life, but I'd also kind of hit the ceiling. And that's when I transitioned to copywriting full time. So I want to ask about the copywriting. But before that, you know, I remember as a kid going to see the amazing Vandermeer, the, ma- mm-hmm. the magician or the hypnotist and seeing that show. And I even bought the book that he sold at the time, you know, yeah. learn how to hypnotize people. You know, maybe I thought that I would get my little sister to cluck like a chicken. I don't, you know, I don't know what I was thinking. But Jesse, how does one become a hypnotist? So now it's really not as safe as it was when I started. I actually took three years of training and I became a certified hypnotherapist. So I took two years of training and then I did a year of mentoring under another expert. So although I never did any hypnotherapy, I could. I could do everything from smoking cessation, weight loss, to this really interesting thing called hypnobirthing, where the woman's hypnotized for a couple months before she has the child and then has the child under hypnosis with no pain medication. What? Yeah. Sign me up. Yeah, you say that, but it's 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 an expensive process because oh. you have to meet with the hypnotist 20, 30 times. And if you figure you're paying them $125 to 150 bucks a session, oh my goodness. right? But yeah, and so I, I started out taking a couple years of the classes. Now, I hypnotized people before I took the classes. I learned to do it in high school just by reading a couple books. But I realized if I was going to do it for a living, I had to get insurance. And to get insurance, I had to be certified. So I became a certified hypnotherapist. I took the training. I got all the certificates. And... Now you don't have to, which is scary. I'm not a big fan of it. That's kind of one of the reasons I transitioned out of the business too. Wow. Okay. So can you still hypnotize people? Yeah, actually, I'll give you guys a cool tidbit. If you've seen a stage hypnosis show, you've seen like the hypnotist invite people's on stage. He goes through the process of hypnotizing them and he touches them on the head and says sleep. And then they go limp like a rag doll. The reality is the people that are going to be hypnotized on stage are hypnotized the second they walk on stage. The hypnotist could sit everybody down, walk down that line of people, touch each of them on the heads and say, sleep, 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 sleep. And everybody that's going to be hypnotized would go out like that. The reality is the audience can't believe that because they don't have the knowledge to understand how it works. So you actually have to put on the theater of hypnotizing somebody for the audience to believe that the people are hypnotized. I'm one of those guys that's not believing that. Like, I, yeah, I, I, I need to understand the why behind that. Tell us more. So hypnosis is really an instant state. We go in and out of hypnotic states all day. You just kind of get in this pattern. You get in this focus. And what's really great about the internet is, especially like when I was coming to the fro, it was really easy for people to use YouTube to see hypnosis shows. So before, when I started, not a lot of people had actually seen a hypnotist. They might have seen him at the comedy club or at a state fair, but most people didn't know what happened. And so less people than normal would get hypnotized. But when I started doing shows, YouTube was popular. And so people would 
look up hypnotists before I do these shows. So by the time I showed up to do the show, they had already been programmed to know what to expect and what to react. And so when I would go on stage, I didn't have to explain it to them. They understood. They could read about it. They could listen to lectures. And so they had done a lot of what we call priming. They had primed their mind to react to stimulus. And when I showed up, it was already all done. All I had to do was do the show. Okay, so let's take this back to copywriting. You know, when you mention things like priming, you know, this is obviously a tactic that we can use with clients or with our clients' customers. Tell me more about how the two interrelate and what you take from hypnotism that makes you a better copywriter. So the one thing that made me a great and successful hypnotist and able to hypnotize a lot of people was that I constantly read the audience. One of the biggest mistakes hypnotists make when they would have a whole group of people and maybe have one person hypnotized was that they stuck to this specific script that they had memorized and they wouldn't read the audience. If I'm hypnotizing people and I see in the first two minutes of my 10 minute hypnotizing process that everybody's already hypnotized. I would just go straight into the show because I was adaptable. And the same thing was true if people weren't responding to what I were doing, I would change tactics to get people hypnotized. And using that skill, reading what people needed to hear and meeting them where they needed to be met made me a great copywriter. I discovered that although templates are helpful and outlines and certain standards do work, it's being able to understand them and then interpret them person to person or audience to audience that really helped me increase my copywriting ability, whether it's writing for a niche audience to get a corporation to hire me, or I'm getting ready to finish out my second $100,000 Kickstarter launch where we sold analog watches that were smartwatches. It was all about being able to interpret the standard and then match the need to the market. Okay, so I know we should be talking about copywriting, but I still have a couple more questions. I'm happy to answer everything. Don't worry. Okay, how could you see and tell that they were hypnotized when you walked into the stage, like you said? Is it just a look in their eye? The big answer is experience, right? Like I I did it full time for 10 years. And so you just start to spot rhythms and patterns. You know how people look, you know how people move, you would know how people would breathe, a lot of things like that. But when people would come on stage, and this is part of the old magician showman in me, every person that came on stage, whether it was an adult or a kid, I would meet them at the foot of the stairs, shake their hand, look them in the eye and introduce myself. Be like, hi, I'm Jesse Jernigan. What's your name? And it would slow the show down a little bit. But it really created a sense of comfort because now you're not just randomly on stage with this guy. It's like he introduced himself. It's kind of comfortable. But when I shook their hands, I could feel how relaxed they were. Like most people don't think about this. Like when you shake somebody's hand, you can feel the tension they carry in their body. So if you grab their hand and then you reach your other hand up and grab their forearm, you can feel where their tension is, if they're relaxed, et cetera. And the people that were already hypnotized had this inherit looseness to their muscles. And I would know where to sit them, how to engage with them and what to expect. Does that kind of answer your question? That does. So then for us as copywriters, do we need to become hypnotists and get certified to use this in our copywriting? Is there a shortcut that we can use to take something from your experience and really write better copy and understand the needs of our, our market? Yeah, I think the thing that translates well is the adaptability of persuasiveness. Hypnosis is the art of persuasion. But to be persuasive, you have to adapt to what the market is. And of course, as copywriters, we all already know to do this. You know, you research your market, you come up with interview questions, you take notes, you create profiles. Hypnotists do the same thing, but they already enter the stage with that on their mind. The big difference is hypnosis is done live, copywriting's done behind the scenes. 
And I feel if you can transfer the skills of remaining adaptable and not fixed, it'd be really helpful. I feel a lot of copywriting that I end up getting paid to rewrite from other copywriters is bad because people came into it with this idea in mind instead of letting it guide them where they needed to be. And I think that's the biggest translatable skill is the adaptability of persuasiveness. Jesse, I want to jump back to when you were talking about how you became a copywriter, you mentioned the package that you would send out to people. And I know Dan Kennedy talks about the shock and awe package, and it sounds like that's what you were sending out, something that just includes tons of stuff. Will you tell us a little bit more about the thinking behind it, what you included in it, what the letter said that worked so well? Okay, so the shock and awe package for me worked mainly because I was the only person they were getting mail from. And so my packages, I think they weighed like four or five pounds. But you got to remember, like YouTube was just now coming out when I started doing this. So it was still kind of normal to send a DVD or two of your show. So when they got my shock and awe package, they would get two DVDs of two different shows and two different audio recorded sessions of me doing hypnotherapy. So right away, four CDs come in. That's four packages, four jewels for people that remember what they called the cases they went in. And then with that, I would have my promo pack and bio. And so there's another eight pages and 14 pages. So now you've got 22 pages. I would have the sales letter and I would have a three-page proposal. The proposal mainly had the show, but then it had extra options, whether they wanted to buy like recordings or have me do private sessions. And most of them never booked it, but it makes you look professional. And the thing that really made the sales letter work was although I had a template sales letter, I would go in and personalize a couple details. I would personalize it to the size of their audience. I would personalize it to the type of speaker and where I'd be performing. And I feel that had a really powerful impact because people would go and they would read it and they say, okay, this kid, it took 10 minutes at least and made this fit to our needs. And I'm sure there were people that thought I had handwritten it for them every time, but they at least saw that I went to the trouble of fitting what they wanted to their circumstance. And I feel for me, that was the most powerful point of the sales letter. But getting back before the shock and awe package and kind of to the whole heart of copywriting and getting work, the thing that really sold me was I was good on the phone. And so by the time they had asked me for a package, in my mind, I had already succeeded. The package was merely the confirmation for the sales call. So you were hypnotizing people on the phone. and (laughs) No, I I can imagine that a lot of copywriters listening, though, would think, well, that's easy because Jesse's a hypnotist or, you know, he can send some of his magic shows on a disc. I don't have that. So my package wouldn't be successful. What would you say that they should include instead? Okay, so if you're actually going to mail a package to somebody and you're not going to cold email it, you have two different situations. You have a cold situation and you have a warm situation. Let's talk about warm situations because that's like congruent to what we're talking about now. So a client, for some reason, wants a direct response package from you through the mail. Okay, what I do is a couple things. First is I would break down your projects that you were most proud of and print them out in a way that's congruent with them being able to read it. And obviously, this will be confusing because... How it appears on a website or a sales page will be different than how it appears in a Google Doc. But that's to your favor because you can format that doc and then take that information, highlight the points that are relevant to them. Because when you're sending people stuff, you don't want to convince them to hire you off your copy. You want to convince them to hire you because you can employ strategy for any type of project. That's the key, I feel, is making the strategy 
congruent to what they want to accomplish. So you would include a couple projects like that. You would highlight it, and then you would have a separate piece where you number these highlighted points and explain, this is the strategy I used here, and I feel that it's important for what you're trying to accomplish. We could do something similar by applying this type of thinking to your project in this way. So you're showing that you've actually thought about their project. You're showing that you understand how to employ strategy, and you're showing that you can think laterally, which are all important skills that employers look for. Okay, Jesse, I really love the point that people are going to hire you for strategy, for your ideas, for your brain, rather than just the actual copy. That's a really good point. What would you say it takes for the cold contacts, you know, cold emails? Because we have a lot of copywriters in our accelerator program who are in the process of doing that. And it's it's frustrating. A lot of them are cold emailing, not necessarily sending these shock and awe packages. But can you just share a little bit about like, what it really takes, you know, how much rejection, if you have any even stats and like a hundred, it takes a hundred emails and maybe you'll hear back from five people that might be helpful. Yeah. So there's two ways to do cold emails. There's a direct cold where you are just picking out people that you'd be interested in working with and sending them packages. And then there's what I call referral cold where they might not have worked with you, but you're kind of in the same areas online. And so they might not know you, but they would recognize your name if it showed up. And for me, I don't do that much cold emailing anymore just because I'm sure a lot of your other guests have said the same thing where once you have business, business propagates business. But when I was doing the cold emailing, I would get, I would say like a 2% response rate, but I was also really targeted. Like I, I didn't send out hundreds of proposals or emails a day. I only wrote people that I was really interested in working with and who I could bring the best possible results. And I used a different approach. I would just send them a question email first. Everybody else is writing these very long, elaborate emails. I wouldn't waste people's time. I would just see if I could start the conversation. And that goes back to like my blog. I believe we're in a conversation economy, but I feel when you send people very large emails with all these different things explaining, I can do this, this is what your website needs, I specialize in this, you're giving them a very easy reason to say no. And so when they, it's easy for them to say no, they're going to say no. When I sent these short emails, I've certainly lowered my opportunity of getting responses, but I made it easier for people to respond for people that I would work with. And so it'd just be something simple like, hey, I saw your website has these features to it. I actually specialize in optimizing these features. And there's a couple things that we could do to make it better. If you're interested in making your website convert more or getting more qualified leads, not necessarily more leads in general, why don't you give me a call? We can talk about it and I can send you some examples. And I know like all the cold emailing people are going to freak out and be like, oh, you shouldn't do that. But it worked for me. I got a ton of clients doing this and I saved a lot of time. But I was also really specific. So I wasn't going out and sending, like I said, 100 a day. I'd spend 10 times as much researching people to help than I would sending emails. So that's kind of like the big thing I did that worked well for me. But yeah, I'd say I had a 2% response rate. Yeah, I think one of the biggest mistakes people make when cold emailing or cold snail mailing is they ask for something that's difficult. And like you're saying, you know, if you can say something as simple as, can I send you a few ideas? And it's very easy for somebody to say yes to, there's no skin in the game, right? Then you can at least start that conversation to the point where you can build the trust to create a project. And one thing I would add to that, which is a really great strategy is... Keep it short, keep it simple to get that first response, get their permission to respond to them. And then that next email, don't actually send them anything related to what you say. Find a way to connect with them on a personal level really quickly, even if it's something generic, and send it to them before you send the ideas. Because this is really an interesting idea that I love. But when you make yourself a human, 
you all of a sudden identified and you stand out. These businesses get hundreds of emails every day. These people get hundreds of emails. And so you just kind of get lost in the glut. So if you can do something that makes you a human and something they relate to on an emotional or mental level, like every time they see your name, it's going to trigger something. And they might not open it. They might ignore you, but you've increased the opportunity to get yes. And so what I would do is if I couldn't find something related to their state, which I usually could because I traveled the country, I would pick the nearest national park to them and say, hey, you're really close to X national park. I'm a huge national park guy. I've been waiting to get that pin. Have you been? And I know it seems unprofessional, but that's the idea. You're trying to remove them from the professional. I'm a boss. I'm, I have a mindset. I have to filter everything this way and make them a human because when you're a human to human communicating, it becomes easier to make suggestions and people are more responsive to ideas. That is a great, great suggestion. So you mentioned the conversation economy. I would love to hear just more about that. What is that to you? And how do we need to think about that as copywriters? Okay, so long pitch made short. Seth Godin said that we're in a gig economy. And I don't entirely agree. I think we're in a conversation economy. My belief is that people that can start and hold the best conversations are going to get the biggest contracts and the best clients. And the reason for that is all of the way people approach job boards today makes the whole freelancing experience transactional, which is a huge mistake. Freelancing is not transactional. It is service related. We are in a service business. We are not in a transactional business. We aren't fixing tires. We aren't providing a doodad or a widget. We are providing an experience. And part of that experience is a conversation. I learned a long time ago when I was doing these sales calls, the thing that got me sold wasn't my exemplary service or my hundred testimonials or my best price. What got me sold was, especially like when I was doing, say, after proms or project grads, which are events that parents would book for kids when at the end of their high school year, it was always moms. And the thing that got me booked was, and this was knowing how to have a conversation with them, was when they call, I would say this. I go, oh my gosh, is this your first graduation? Are your kids leaving the house? <laughs> and see, you know, it's funny is notice Kira laugh, but not Rob, <laughs> because every woman recognizes that and they're going to want to talk about their kid. And so right away, people are like talking about their kid and they're relating to me and we haven't even talked about the show. But because I started that conversation, I took control of the element. I took control of the relationship. I was laughing because I was just thinking, wow, you really work it. That's good. I'm laughing inside. You know, it's- yeah. Rob doesn't laugh. <laughs> Yeah. So when you can control the conversation or you can move it in a direction that makes you relatable, you can shift how people perceive you. You can lift the barriers that people have. And does this work all the time? Obviously not, because it's still a numbers game. And I think that's the biggest issue people have with this freelancing is it's just numbers. I mean, you have to be good. You have to have the systems in place. You have to treat a business like a business and all the common sense stuff. But it's hard. It's a numbers game. It's what I liken to a supermarket. When you go to the supermarket, there's 10,000 items. You leave with 50. Does that mean that other 9,950 items are bad or not worth it? No, they're just not relevant to you. And if you can take that mindset and apply it to your freelancing business, you'll never get upset or worried because you're just going to understand that you're not right for those people at that right moment. Yeah, there's a huge difference between refusal and rejection. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times people refuse to work with us because either they don't understand the value of what we're offering or the time isn't right. And too many of us as freelancers respond to a refusal as if it's rejection, as if it's personal and people don't like us or don't want to work with us. And so why would we ever want to reach out to them again? One thing that really drives me crazy is... 
people don't understand too. It's like, you can be a great crappy writer, but it doesn't mean your tone and style is a fit for a project. And that's one thing that has really increased responses to my proposals is all right to people like, Hey, let's talk. Like just because we talk doesn't mean we're going to work together. Cause I understand that I'm a great copywriter, but I might not be a great copywriter for your project. And the easiest way for us to figure that out quickly is just for us to talk. And people are like right away, like, okay, boom, no pressure sales. I'm in. I like that. And now that you mentioned the sales and your process, I'm really interested in hearing more about how you are selling them. Like, let's talk about your first conversation with them. Is it really laid back? Do you have certain questions you're asking? Or what does that look like so that it is laid back? And then you can also lead them into a proposal Mm -hmm. and make sure that you're going to land that proposal. It's not totally off or out of budget. So on our first phone call, I usually like to figure out what their project is. So I have a lot of notes before I enter into it. And I have an idea of what they want to accomplish. I kind of have an idea of how they can accomplish it. And I have different layers that we can accomplish it at different time frames, depending on how much they want to spend. So we get on the phone. The first thing we do is I spend the first minute, minute and a half, just kind of talking, you know, Oh, hey, how are you? Oh, we're doing great. How's life been on your side? Great. Yeah, it's been crazy here. And, you know, find something to relate to. So that way you've just eased in the conversation. And it sounds so simple. And people are like, why are you saying this? But this is probably the most important part because you're not starting people cold. People do this all the time. They go directly into the sales pitch or directly into the call. And it's really uncomfortable. And people have a hard time getting their footing. So if you transition people naturally from a conversation into the proposal talk as far as the call is concerned, it makes it easier for the person to be more responsive because they're relaxed. So once I've done that, I have a questionnaire. And the questionnaire is actually, it's the same in the sense that I need the same information every time from the clients, but it's personalized to their project. So I just got done pitching. I don't want to give you his name, but he's a really big sales consultant for building materials and sales. And he's brought me on as his full-time copywriter, essentially. And I'm kind of like his best friend now as far as his freelancer. But when we got on our first call, I figured out, okay, what does he actually want to accomplish? Like, does he want more clients or does he want to make more money? If he wants to make more money, does he want to funnel people to the thing that's making them money or get them into the tip of the funnel of speakers? And so I figured out what he wants to accomplish based on our first contact. And then when I got on the phone, I started asking him these really targeted questions about you know, what are you specifically trying to accomplish here? Do you have a long-term goal or is this something that you want to solve right now? If this is something that you want to solve right now, what's been the problem that hasn't, you know, let you solve this yet? And so by the time we got off the phone, I had already asked him all these super relevant questions to what he's doing. And I showed that I thought about his project and his issue from a lot of different perspectives. Now, I didn't come up with this on my own. Pretty much everything that I do is a hybrid that I've built up over the years from Ramit Sethi's free talk he did with Chase Jarvis on Creative Live. He calls this method the briefcase technique. And the whole idea is just showing up more prepared than they are. Yeah, this is a really big idea. I think a lot of copywriters, you know, hear, hey, I need website copy. And so they immediately are thinking, okay, the deliverable is website copy. I need to work on that rather than take a step back and say, why do you need website copy? What is the business challenge that we're trying to solve with website copy? Because in the end, it may actually not be website copy that they need to actually solve the problem. Maybe they need to take a step back and look at the channels where traffic is coming from, or maybe it's even a step farther down the funnel to the sales process and working with the internal team. That's not necessarily something that most copywriters want to do, but 
thinking about businesses strategically is a huge mind shift for a lot of a lot of writers. Mm-hmm. Plus, you're doing a level of responsibility to the client that makes you stand out. Everybody else will be going for the sell, but if you're going for the solution, people will remember that. So they might not hire you right then because your solution won't be congruent to what they really need or as far as copy is concerned. But when copy does come back up right away, they're going to be like, I need to talk to that person because they were on spot. They knew. So this area, they're going to have the solution I want. Yeah. So all of this stuff, I think, relates to some of the success that you've had on Upwork. We've talked with a few copywriters on the podcast who have used Upwork successfully, although I think the general sense with most copywriters is that it's really hard to do well. So people like Paige Putianan, who we interviewed recently, we've talked to Danny Margulies. They talk about how to have success. You've had some of that success. What did you do differently that most people don't? First off, I want to say like, I really love Upwork. I don't use it as my main income source anymore. It was a great place to start. I mostly do Upwork now. So my audience has a forward facing evidence of what I do. So they can see that I, you know, like I'm actually freelancing and I'm not just doing everything privately. But for me, the thing that really made Upwork resonate is I I have three things that work. One, I have a profile that is relevant to a very specific thing. And if you guys go to my profile, you can see exactly what I've written and exactly who I serve. So when people see my profile, right away, they're going to know I'm for them or I'm not for them. And this is important because it saves me time. A lot of people are going to hear that and go, oh, I don't want to turn people away. Yes, you do. You want to turn away 95% of people that come your way simply because you don't want to waste your time with people that you can't get the best possible results for. And I forget who wrote it on Copyblogger, but they said, there's a really great thing that I love. They said, if you were getting 50% or more yeses on your project proposals, you're either trying to help too many people or you're not charging enough. And I agree with that completely. You should hear no a lot because your price should be right at the people's comfort limits and you should be right at the like limit of their solutions too, which is really important. So my profile solves that for me. The second thing is, proposals. And I still do this today. When I send a proposal, I look for somebody a that has a project that I would want to work on that's large. I'm not getting on projects and doing things for $100 here or $200 there. Or if I am, I'm taking a gamble because I recognize that it could transition into a larger project. But that comes from being able to read social cues, understanding the nature of those businesses, etc. So when I send a proposal, I've identified that, okay, you know, it's going to be $2,000. It's going to be $5,000. It's going to be a week's worth of work because they're going to need X. They're going to need Y. They're going to need Z. So I send the proposal and I say, hey, you know, and this is where we get back to the conversation economy thing is I send a proposal to open a conversation. I don't tell them I'm going to do this, this, and this, and it'll cost you this. I think that's a waste of time. What I do is I tell them, look, I'm an expert in this thing that you want. I've accomplished this. I did it this way. I think this would work for what you're trying to accomplish. Why don't we talk? I can review your project more, see if what I do would resonate with what you want to accomplish. And in doing so, we can see if I can make what you want to happen, happen. And that's it. I'll send a testimonial or two and I'll clarify the results they want. But other than that, that's all I send. And people right away, they're boom, they want to talk to you. And I'm usually, I'd say nine... 99 times out of 100, I am the most expensive copywriter they'll hire. And I'm usually the most expensive copywriter they'll hire by at least a 200% price hike. So most people average out at between $50 and $65. I'm at $125 in January and going up to $250 an hour. So people, when they respond to me, they know what to expect. They understand the limitations. And they also know that I'm not trying to sell them. I'm just trying to see if I can bring them the results they want. And so it makes it easy for them to respond to me. And then the third thing that really works for me on Upwork is 
when they do respond to me, I really take the time to see if I can help them. And I know it sounds kind of holistic, but it's really important to only work with people that you can help. And you would be surprised at how, and this is a weird thing, you'd be surprised how upset people get when they've responded to you and you tell them that you're not the right fit. Because if they respond to you, they've emotionally, mentally, and physically invested time in you. And there's a good chance they're going to hire you. But when you tell them, hey, you know, I honestly just don't think that what you would be paying me would be worth the outcome I can create for you. And doing those three things has led me to booking tons of ongoing projects, getting a couple people that moved with me off Upwork to become very large ongoing projects. And I even booked, a, when I first started out, a $6,000 project as the least qualified and most expensive freelancer they had talked to, simply because I used this process. Okay. I want to say that, you know, whether or not you're a fan of Upwork, because again, it could be great for a lot of copywriters, maybe not so great for other copywriters. I don't have experience on Upwork. I think what stands out to me and what you show is that it's this great portfolio piece that you really, I mean, it's, you have your score. I think you're a 90% rating. You're one of the top rated professionals on Upwork. It shows how much you've earned on Upwork, 40K. Which is weird because I've actually earned like, I think like 95K, but it just doesn't update. (laughs) Yeah. But even so, 40K is really impressive. So when I look at that, if I didn't know you at all, Jesse, and I just saw that, I would say, wow, this is someone who really knows what he's doing. And I want to hire him, even if I want to hire you beyond the walls of Upwork. So as far as a portfolio piece, I think it's outstanding. Mm -hmm. If someone's listening who is new to copywriting and they're just trying to get their first few clients, what advice would you give them for navigating Upwork in those early days so that it, it works for them and they can be one of the success stories like you? I would think it goes back to lateral strategy implementation. And what I mean by that is when you talk to a client and you don't have, say, a specific portfolio piece because you're starting out or because you're transitioning into something new or because it's a stretch beyond what you normally do, what you do is you include a portfolio piece that you do have and you explain why that project, although it isn't directly related to what they want for their project, still applies because the strategies that you use to make that successful would apply in their project. And then you explain why that strategy would work. You're doing two things when you do this. First, you are squeezing all the value out of your existing portfolio without having to take on a bunch of extra cheap work to like fluff it. But the other side is you're showing the client that you can think outside of just writing copy. You're showing that you're a strategist, that you're a consultant, that you're a thought leader, that you understand implementation. And those are really powerful because here's the truth. Like anybody can write copy, but very few people can employ strategy and people really want strategy. They don't want copy. Jesse, I want to change directions a little bit. You've been working on, or or you've recently just had an online summit Mm -hmm. and I'm curious really about what goes into creating it. Everything from, you know, the tools you use to setting up interviews to the launch plan. Will you walk us through what you're doing and how you're getting it done? Okay. First thing I want to say is everybody should do a summit. Even if you don't have an audience or you're not going to make money on it, it is the easiest way to expand your professional network and do so in a way that provides value to people that you want to grow with. Perfect example is this podcast. Both of you guys were on my summit. And because of that, we developed a deeper relationship than we had on the Facebook group. The same thing's true with a bunch of other people that are on the summit. 
So even if you don't have an audience or you don't want to make money with it, you guys should do it. With that said, the process I used was I decided first what I wanted to accomplish. Now I have a blog and I wanted to draw more readers to the blog. I wanted to have more subscribers. So I took my existing blog concept and I expanded it to fit one particular niche. It's the idea of writing proposals that get you booked so you can book your schedule full. And I started searching out for like successful freelancers online. And specifically, the summit really covers either social media marketers or people in the freelance writing world, whether it's SEO, content, copywriting, because that was something I really have a lot of experience in and I can speak to. So I researched a bunch of people. I came up with a list of about 150 people. And once I had that list, I researched everybody on the list to see who was actually doing it. And that goes back to what I was talking about earlier with Upwork. Just because you have a forward-facing website that says you're successful doesn't necessarily mean it's true. I have to be able to go in and say, okay, you know, are you doing work? Do you have projects? Like if I speak to you, are you actually going to be saying things that like resonate from experience? Or are you just rehashing what you've read on other articles on like Copy Hacker, which although it's a great website, I don't necessarily need somebody to tell me what Joanna Weeb said, pretending that they were the ones to say it first. And once I had a list of people narrowed from 150 down to about 40, I just started contacting them. And what I did specifically was I started from a place of power. I'd been blogging for three years. I have a pretty good audience. I have some networks. And I reached out to the people in the network first. Some people I didn't reach out to to get them to talk with me, but I reached out with them to do conversational gambits for. So I'd say, hey, I'm doing this really cool summit. I know this isn't what you're doing, but you've talked with these other people. Could you give me some introductions? Now, I cold emailed some people too. Great example of that is James Johnson. He is a really cool guy, and he happened to catch me at a certain time, and we got together. Another person that I got on the summit that I absolutely just fell in love with was Natalie McGuire. Like, I caught her randomly. And what's really funny is I caught her because for like a week or two, she tried one of those chat features on her website, and I spoke to her directly through it. But that's a random aside. So I started building up the list of speakers. I originally had 30, but people fell off because of personal things or scheduling conflicts. So once I had that secured, I then built out the site. I used Thrive Architect because I use Rainmaker and I didn't have a lot of experience with WordPress. I didn't want to spend a lot of time learning it. Thrive Architect really cut my time down and they had a lot of things that I was able to use as far as either widgets or social implications. Like they've got countdown timers, they've got great landing pages, it integrates easily with ConvertKit, MailChimp, and all the other integrations too, like ThriveCart, Teachable, etc. For my private site, I'm using Teachable. Teachable is super easy to use. I bought a more expensive version because I got a little bit of an affiliate deal from somebody. So instead of paying for a full year, I'm paying for a part of the year. And so it makes up the difference in cost. I'm hosting my videos on Vimeo because it allows me to make them private. I learned that. I learned Teachable. I learned WordPress. I learned Thrive Architect. I learned Thrivecart. And these are the things that allowed me to create an integrative process that's seamless for the user. Now, I did this for two reasons. The first reason I told you, I'm going to build my audience. I'm going to be selling online courses and training and coaching, and I wanted to have a larger audience so that way I can start engaging, getting more information about what they want, specifically create courses to create a side income that allow me to have something that's in perpetuity. But the other thing I wanted to do was to be able to take something very high ticket to copywriting customers so I can say to them, hey, I know how to launch a summit. Because I've done product launches, I've done Kickstarter launches, I've done live event launches, but this is something different entirely because it is a huge, all-inclusive package. You need copy, 
You need outreach. You need strategy. You need market growth. And I have it all now because I've done this. And so I can go to the client and say, hey, we should do a summit. It might take four months and it might cost you $25,000 or $45,000, but this is what you can accomplish. This is what I've accomplished. This is what I did. Here's my data. And all of a sudden it's like, whoa. So that's kind of the reason twofold why I put together the summit. Those are the systems that I use. That's the reason I use the systems. I want to know, you know, like the nitty gritty, real talk, what has surprised you the most, you know, or even aggravated you the most? It could be positive and negative about the whole experience of what it really takes to put on a summit because clearly it's a lot of work. Oh my God. So I did a blog post on my blog. It was a big 2000 word piece. And it was all about how for the last 14 weeks, I've worked 70 hours a week every week because I was doing the summit and my copywriting job at the same time. And I, I want to make a point before I get into this. I didn't go into this not knowing that was going to happen. Like I had planned for this and I had built things in. So it wasn't just this random like, oh, Jesse's going to go and work until his fingers fall off. Like I had planned this all out. But to me, the two biggest issues is WordPress. Like I know a lot of people love WordPress. Is a guy that's used to having packages that are complete where you don't have to seek things out, integrate them, zap them. It's childish to me how unstructured it is. And I use it and it's fine, but it's incredibly frustrating because there's so many small details that unless you're really dug into it, a normal person can't do well without help. And I feel that's bad design. It's the same thing with cars or anything. Like if I can't go in as a normal person and make things work on average, it's not built well. It's too complicated. And I feel that way about WordPress. So I was really thankful to get Thrive Architect. But one thing that really frustrated me was I forget what Thrive was. I think it was Thrive Builder, but I had Thrive Builder, and then they transitioned to Architect. So literally my whole site, I built it all, paid for these templates, and boom, it exploded. Nothing worked. So I had to go back in and do it all again. And to me, that was the most frustrating thing. But yeah, it's, it's a lot of work. I mean, just the normal details. If you were to look at my entire swipe copy file, I figure I've probably written... 25 to 30,000 words of copy, whether it's sales pages, emails, blog posts, guest posts, promotions, ads. And that doesn't even account for like, I wrote a 10,000 word profit playbook for people that buy the all access pass. I wrote five bonus eBooks that probably come out to another 15,000 worth of words that you get when you have the all access pass. So it was just, I mean, it was a slog. It was a ton of work. It was working every morning. I would get up at five 30 and I would work till probably seven o'clock at night and it was hard, but it was worth it. The other thing that upset me, but I was very cool about was people constantly rescheduling times. And <laughs> I think I did that, didn't I? <laughs> yeah, but at least you like called me ahead of time. A lot of people did it the day of, and that really sucked. But at the same time, I couldn't complain because people who are very high ticket people, Ryan Robinson, Leanna Patch, Natalie McGuire, people that are making a quarter of a million dollars a year were giving their, their time for free. So I, I, I understood and I, I was very calm about it. I didn't let it get to me, but it was upsetting because like you have to set aside time. So although I have like an hour and 15 minutes set aside for the podcast, I obviously had more time set aside than that because I had to show up early. I had to set everything up. And that was kind of the other thing that really was troublesome was just the amount of time it took to do the interviews. I have 23 interviews, which comes out to a little under 23 hours worth of time. And whew, man, it was, it's just, that's just a lot of time. Yeah, that's a lot. And so How are you packaging it as far as what are you charging? What do people get? And I'm asking because someone, you know, may want to package their summit in a similar way. What I did for my summit was I wanted to have a minimum of 20 hours of video. 
And when I say video, like it's pretty much just like a conversation done as an interview where you come in, you have a couple really great ideas that you'd like that person you're talking with to share. Along with that, I had eBooks and a profit playbook and I'm doing a mastermind Facebook group. And so I have kind of like a quadruple hit. So they have the 20 hours of content and now along with the 20 hours of content, they get a profit playbook where you recap all of that content and you take the best of. And it's kind of like getting minutes. So if somebody doesn't want to sit through all 20 hours because it might not all be relevant to them, they can use the profit playbook and say, okay, I want to listen to these four talks. Perfect. And then the same thing with the eBooks. I have eBooks that touch on every level of skill set, whether people are just beginning and they don't know the right way to ask for testimonials, to people that want to know the exact tactics and outlines I use when I create six-figure sales letters. And I've created multiple ones that I give them examples of. And then along with that, I have a Facebook group. And the reason I have the Facebook group is, and this is more for personal, but it'd be something to consider. I want to funnel people into a coaching system, take the information from the coaching, and then build an online course that I can sell in evergreen format. Because of that... The Facebook group, which I'm going to give them access to, allows me to do four coaching calls with interested people. I can record their questions and then do a whole bunch of follow-up with them by helping them. And in that follow-up, figure out exactly what they're trying to accomplish, just like you try to figure out exactly what a client wants. And I can build either a coaching service like that. So that's kind of the main outline. As far as delivery goes, the summit happens two ways. Live attendance is free. So you schedule your WordPress with, I have a redirector that I can't remember the name off the top of my head, but each talk opens up 10 minutes before it's scheduled time. So you can go on the page and you can watch 10 minutes before. And then at the end of that talk at that period of time, you can't see it anymore. And the next talk opens and then that's it. The free thing only happens once. So it's not up for a week and they can watch it all. They've got one period to catch it. And then if they don't, if they want to see it, they'd have to buy the all access pass. And that's kind of the idea. Like you want people to buy the all access pass because you're funneling out people that are going to be specific customers going forward. And then when they buy the all access pass, everything's parked indefinitely for an entire year on Teachable along with all the bonuses that I just told about. Jesse, I'm curious, and you might want to be very careful in answering this question. Who were the two best speakers that you interviewed? Oh, man. <laughs> I was probably thinking like I was going to ask the same question, but I was going to say, who is the best one? Yeah, there, there's there's a couple of really good ones I know about. Well, what's great is like everybody that you guys suggested was amazing. I'll say this. The funniest one for me was Natalie McGuire. Like I had no idea about Natalie before we started. And our really our first conversation in person was about 10 minutes before the summit talk. And like during the summit talk, I was just blown away. Like we have the exact same like mental philosophy when talking with clients, with teaching people. And like pretty much the whole conversation is us agreeing with each other, which I thought was hilarious. Me and yours talk was great because we get to talk about Steve Martin, which is, you know, I was great finding out that you're a big fan of him. Then we got to talk about that. But we also got to relate a couple really cool things from the summit about Steve Martin's career and his approach to copywriting. Kira, it was great because you dug into my experience as a hypnotist. And so we're able to not only talk about something really unique, but we're able to take those strategies and apply them. Everybody had something kind of unique. Like, you know, for instance, Justin Blackman. Justin was really cool just because we get to talk about deliberate practice, which is something I'm a huge fan of, but a lot of people don't know about with his headline project. When I talked with Hillary Weiss, she had one of my favorite quotes from the entire summit. And I think she lifted this from Joanna, but I still loved it. She said... <laughs> Yeah, it, it was a while ago, so I can't, I'm not 100% on it. But she said, don't charge what you can afford, charge what it's worth. 
And I remember, like, I, I still get tingles when I hear that. I'm just like, oh, it's so good. Like, you know, you like you know it, but to hear it put so succinctly, you know, it's like that Mark Twain quote. The the difference between a good word and the right word is the difference between a lightning bug and the lightning, right? And that was one of those moments where it's like, ooh, you know, it gave me the chills. So everybody had something that I really was a favorite of. I can really talk about every single person because it was unique. Like, I, I made sure we developed a personality and rapport. It wasn't just me peppering them with the same questions. And that's one thing I should say, too. I didn't mention this. Every single person I talk with, although we talk about the same strategies and ideas, each person's questions were unique. And that was like a mistake I thought a lot of summits make is they go in and everybody answers the same questions. And this is kind of why I have a problem with uh, John Lee Dumas's Entrepreneur on Fire is because after a while, like the answers are all the same and they might have like one or two shades different. But by tailoring questions that talked about the same strategies, but were different and unique to the person, you're able to supply a unique perspective for multiple people from multiple disciplines. And that was, that was something I was really proud of myself for. Well, and you did a great job making us all feel special. I felt special when I was chatting with you. So it was enjoyable on our end. Jesse, I want to wrap up with final question. And so, you know, you have a really interesting background. Again, the first hypnotist magician on our show <laughs> who spent a lot of time in direct response. So what to you does the future of copywriting look like? I see the future of copywriting for the market growing. As more and more people move businesses online, they're moving them online with an understanding of the expectations it's going to take for their business to grow. And they're doing it with more revenue. And it might not necessarily be money that they have saved, but it's money they're willing to spend. So the people that are going to succeed, the people that are going to be getting a hold of this money that are be growing with the market, they're going to be people that recognize that at its heart, copywriting is about providing service. One thing that I talked about with a lot of people on the summit is I don't work for people. I work with people. When you hire me, you're not hiring me as an employee. You're bringing me on as a partner. Your concerns are my concerns. And I feel with how small business is becoming online, where it's like one or two people businesses that are because of automation or integration of apps or plugins, or they're able to provide very large services to a lot of people, people are going to need consultants. They are going to need guidance. And as copywriters, you don't just know how to sell things. You understand implementation. You understand strategy. And I feel like that's where copywriting will go as this big business, small user kind of market grows. They're going to need somebody like with that Jay Abraham perspective of where I am a trusted advisor. I'm not just the person that writes your emails. I am the person that shows up with you once a week and we discuss strategy. We look for the market growth. We take chances together. I think that will be ultimately where the market goes. For me, I'm going to become more of a thought provider, a thought leader, and a consultant, unless the guy sitting there actually writing out the copy at some point. Because I understand my time and my skills make me more valuable for these. And I'd rather sell something that I can get more results for. And it's a selfish reason. The more results I create, the better I look. The better I look, the more I can charge, the more results I can create going onward, right? And so I'm ultimately going to position myself, and I think this is how the market will go, to be an advisor, to be somebody that clients turn to for results and not for just a one-off project. Good stuff. Yeah, really good stuff. That's a great answer. Thank you. <laughs> Finishing strong. <laughs> Jesse, if people are looking to connect with you, the summit is over. But if they want to, to see the replay or to, again, to connect with you, where would they be looking? So you guys should check out my blog. It is Live Gold Rich. I know it's a goofy name, but it's a solid idea. 
And you can find me there. I have a great mailing list. Check it out. It'll be right at the top. I have this awesome email sequence. If you want to get access to the summit and it's not open and you've listened to this, just shoot me an email. I'll open up access. I can open a space for you in Teachable if it's something you're interested in. And it's a pretty great mailing list. I write once or twice a week. I pretty much just share really interesting ideas and strategies for socializing yourself to get more gigs, find better clients and book larger contracts. Very cool. Awesome. Thank you, Jesse, for including us in your summit and also being a part of our show. Yeah, thank you for coming on. And thank you so much for making contacts for me so I could bring on people I didn't even know existed. I feel it not only enriched my network, but it really brought a lot of value to everybody that's going to attend. Excellent. Thanks, Jesse. All right, guys. Have a good afternoon. You've been listening to the Copywriter Club podcast with Kira Hug and Rob Marsh. Music for the show is a clip from Gravity by Whitest Boy Alive, available in iTunes. If you like what you've heard, you can help us spread the word by subscribing in iTunes and by leaving a review. For show notes, a full transcript, and links to our free Facebook community, visit thecopywriterclub.com. We'll see you next episode. Oh,